Welcome to another episode of Congo Kids Life Stories, where I share my experiences of growing up in the Congo in Central Africa. My hope is you find knowledge, entertainment, information, and insight of another culture and a new perspective of the Congolese people and Africa. Back in 2021, I had the idea from another podcast I listened to to share some short stories that aren't long enough for an episode, but still might be interesting and entertaining nonetheless. It received the normal amount of positive feedback, so folks did enjoy listening to them. So I've been jotting down various incidents that have been coming to mind and finally put these stories down on paper in a format to tell them. So today's episode is titled, Short Stories, Volume 2. Like the first volume of short stories, there will be four in this episode as well. Today, you're going to hear about how to check chicken eggs for freshness, or not. Also, there's a story about whether knowing someone for social impact and influence is better than people knowing you. You're also going to hear about a guy named Liabina Mundoki Matata, which is from the Ngbaka language in Northwest Congo, and how he got that name. And finally, there's a story about my scary venture down a 65-foot well hanging on a bucket and all the cool stuff I found while I was down there. So let's begin with story number one, titled, It's Not Who You Know, It's Who Knows You. Some people are famous or gain celebrity status by nature of their profession. For example, people on TV or in movies are famous. Others become an internet sensation by posting a viral video and become famous that way. Others are musicians. People can identify them on the street, and this often can be problematic. While most of us average Joes or Janes think we'd want to be famous and have people asking for selfies with us or for our autograph, in reality, being normal and just part of the average crowd is actually rather nice. I would not want to be the center of attention taking my family out to dinner, for example, with people bugging me or asking dumb questions and taking photos. It might be fun initially, but would grow wearisome in very short order. From 1970 to 1990, my dad, Roger Eels, taught at a local high school at Kala and then Gemina in the Democratic Republic of Congo. During his years there, he had thousands of students go through his classes. Many of these folks moved on into the university, and others got high-level positions all throughout the region and country. In addition, Dad was very involved in showing movies out in villages, and estimates over 100,000 people saw the movies he showed. He also connected with all the other high schoolers in the city by showing them movies in his living room. Again, thousands of kids came to know my dad, or who he was, known as Monsieur Roger. He was known everywhere, highly respected, and appreciated for all he did for his students and people in the region. 
If I was traveling somewhere and stopped for a break or had a mechanical issue to help break the ice with the local villagers, I'd tell them that I was Moana na Monsieur Roger, or son of Mr. Roger. And invariably, someone there had heard of him or seen him or had a relative that was one of his students. Boom! Instant cred! So it was in 2007 that Dad went back to Africa for some meetings, and he chose to stay an additional week to visit with many of his former students. This was going to be his farewell visit to Africa, as he was now retired and traveling long distances was getting more challenging. These folks were now adults, they were teachers, pastors, and living their lives and raising their families. He had former students come from all over, some walking for 50 miles or riding a bike for 100 miles to be able to spend a few hours having coffee with Dad. All in all, he was able to meet with 75 former students, a reward and blessing indeed for the opportunity to spend time with former students, then young men and women, and now functioning adults. Well, in 2013, a call went out to go on a two-week trip back to Gimena, Democratic Republic of Congo, to teach English at an orphanage. There were several Congolese couples that acted as the tour guides and chaperones for visiting Americans that were helping with the orphanage in different capacities. And being able to speak English with the Americans was very helpful. In addition, in between these visiting Americans, these couples could teach English to earn money. Though Dad thought his 2007 visit was his last ever, he decided to go. I heard about the trip, and I jumped at the chance to return to my homeland after many years of not being on the continent. So in January 2013, we both went back to Congo, Africa. We arrived on a Saturday night in Kinshasa, the capital. We had several days there before our trip upcountry to begin our teaching assignment at the orphanage. This was all good, as we needed a few days to get jet lag squared away. Many of Dad's former students had moved to the capital and were involved in working in government jobs, being attorneys, or pastoral work. When news got out about Monsieur Roger being in town, they started to show up at our hotel. Dad started keeping a log, and as each day progressed, he started telling me how many former students had come to see him. The first day was five or so. Then day two was up to ten or twelve. Several times a day, as a group of folks departed, he'd announce about how many he was up to. I started getting tired hearing about it, as it was borderline bragging, though I didn't tell him that. I think he was at 34 visitors by Wednesday when we flew up country to Gimena. We landed midday. We deplaned and walked across the tarmac to the waiting truck to take us to the mission station for a welcome lunch. As I'm dragging my carry-on and taking it all in and looking around at the airport I'd not seen in 30 years, I heard someone yell, Monsieur, trying to get my attention. I turned around. I said, Monsieur Roger Azalikuna, meaning Mr. Roger is over there. Yo, Azali, Mr. Jeff? No, you are Mr. Jeff, he said. Again, I pointed to Monsieur Roger and shook my head. Mr. Jeff, Naebio. Mr. Jeff, I know you. At this, I stopped and turned to hear what he had to say. He was calling my name. I was rather surprised a random person recognized me, and I had no idea who he was. The man went on to explain that I'd been his teacher at Institute Chemia in 1982 when he was in ninth grade. Now, 30 years later, he was working at the airport and recognized me hauling my luggage to the truck. 
I didn't remember him when he gave me his name, as I'd had 120 total students and 30 years had elapsed. But it did give me a good feeling that somehow I was still remembered by a former student. So presumably, I'd made a positive impact on him. With that, I turned to face my dad as he'd witnessed the exchange. I reached out my hand towards him and pointed my index finger in the air and yelled triumphantly, One! While I enjoyed reconnecting with numerous former friends from my growing up years, other former students that my dad taught did trickle in to see us during our two-week stay in Gemina. Indeed, that was a testament to the positive impact he had on those former students during his teaching years. So the title of this short story is, It's Not Who You Know, It's Who Knows You. At the end of our trip, the numbers were in. The final tally of visiting former students, Dad, 62, Me, 1. So on to story number two. This story is about eggs. I'll title it, How to Check Eggs for Freshness. In America, we all take for granted chicken eggs purchased from the grocery store. Here, there are numerous kinds of chicken eggs. In fact, reading the newspaper recently, I came across an article that talked about different kinds of eggs and how they're graded. Double A, a or B is how they're graded based on appearance and the firmness of the egg white. Typically, grocery store eggs are grade A, which is fine for baking and cooking. However, in our American culture of too many choices and pickiness, here's a sampling of egg choices one faces at a grocery store. Cage-free, range-free, pasture-raised, certified organic, antibiotic-free, natural fresh, and farm fresh, to name a few categorizations. There are more. And they come in either brown or white, with sizes being peewee, to small, to medium, to large, and extra large. Ah, the choices we first world shoppers have to deal with. They're also relatively cheap to buy, and you can go buy several dozen at a time, no problem. In Congo, where I grew up, Eggs were not too plentiful, nor did we have the luxury of various kinds and sizes of eggs. In fact, unless you had your own chicken coop with hens in it, you depended on the Congolese coming to your door to sell a few eggs now and then. We'd pay cash, or we'd barter by trading them a t-shirt or other clothing for the eggs. However, there were no state or federal health inspectors or standards for ensuring quality control of the eggs being sold. Caveat emptor meaning buyer beware, was the rule of the day when buying eggs from a villager. In America, the only thing to check is to pop the lid of the egg carton open, look to see if by rare chance one of them has cracked and leaked a little bit, then close the carton and head to the checkout line. Upon returning home, they go in the fridge often for weeks at a time. When it's time to make scrambled eggs or add eggs to a recipe, there is never a concern of a problem with the eggs. Not so in Congo. First off, 
The buying experience usually involves someone showing up at our door with an egg or maybe even a few. There were no egg cartons to protect them. Where had they been? Had they been sitting in the sun for hours or days? Normally they were chicken eggs, but often duck eggs would be at our front door for sale as well. And I should mention they were dinky, as the chickens weren't fed corn or grain and pumped full of hormones. The hens were scrawny and foraged for food all day, so their eggs were very small. Egg size? Probably between peewee and small, is my guess. Now to test the eggs for two things. First was being bad or rotten. And second was if they were fertilized eggs, meaning there was a baby chicken forming inside the egg. Remember, these hens essentially roamed free in the village and no doubt any roosters in the area would try to do their duty to create more chickens. No controlled hens-only barns here to ensure 100% non-fertilized eggs being laid in Congo. After the visual and sniff test to see if the egg was rotten or not, or had a crack in it, there were two ways to test the egg to see if it was good or not with a fairly high chance of certainty. Method one, get a flashlight, place the lens on the eggshell and turn it on and look at the glowing egg to see if you can see through it or if there was any shape or form inside it. This was usually a defined shadow of sorts. If no shadow, it was probably okay. Method two, get a small bowl of water and place the egg in it. If the egg sank to the bottom and lay flat, it meant it was good. If the egg stood up on one end and didn't sink, then that meant it was probably rotten. So buying a few eggs at a time was a time-consuming quality control process to ensure that what you were buying was probably good. However, these two methods weren't foolproof. As any veteran cook or chef in the kitchen in Congo will tell you, one does not crack an egg directly into flour or batter or whatever else you need it for when making a cake or cookie dough. Nay, take the alleged good egg that passed the sniff test, the flashlight test, and the water floating test and crack it into a separate cup. If it still looks good with the proper egg white and yolk configuration, then you take the egg and add it to the cookie dough or cake batter or whatever. Occasionally, the egg would be bad or have a half-formed baby chick in it and have to be thrown out. So next time you are at the grocery store and see hundreds of cartons of eggs with numerous varieties and sizes, be glad you don't have to check them individually for freshness and fertilization. Because when you want to whip up some scrambled eggs for breakfast, you can crack the eggs directly into the frying pan. Doing that in Congo might yield a surprise, unfortunately, and it won't be a nice surprise. Why do I think that you will look at eggs differently from here on out and maybe just pause ever so briefly remembering this podcast before you crack the egg directly into the frying pan? <laughs>
The third short story of this episode is titled, Down the Well. That's Down the Well. In America and most Western countries, one simply turns on a faucet to get clean, drinkable water. And you can get hot or cold water instantly as well. We Americans take that for granted. But in many places in the world, it's not like that. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, for instance, when I was a kid growing up in the 1970s, we often had to haul water from a local stream several miles away in 55-gallon barrels, then unload the water bucket by bucket for use in the toilet, washing machine, and for showering. Things have progressed a bit as many places in DR Congo now have solar-powered well pumps or hand-crank well pumps that allow villagers to access water for their daily lives. And it's clean. So in 1982, I was passing through the mission station called Bao. Recall from my podcast episode of being the Gemini Gopher, my role involved driving all over the place for various reasons. So one afternoon, I was in Bao and planned to spend the night. Bao was the location of one of the few schools for girls only. Due to the topography, there were no nearby streams or water wheels to pump water to the station. Rather, Bao had a hand-dug well as the water source. I'd guess it was about 60 to 70 feet deep. Stephen Wester was one of the teachers there and was a friend of mine from growing up in Congo, as well as a fellow collegiate soccer teammate. So shortly after I drove up, he asked if I'd be up to helping out the girls' school with a serious problem. It seemed that the girls would drop their buckets down into the well to winch it up with water, but the buckets were getting dented and broken and stuck, and they didn't know exactly why. So would I be willing to go down into the well to see what was going on? Hmm... I'd be putting my life in Stephen's hands and trusting he was strong enough to winch me down safely as well as to have the muscles strong enough to pull me back up. A few thoughts immediately came to mind. What about claustrophobia? Nah, I didn't suffer from that, fortunately. But what about danger? I didn't know what I was in for as I'd never gone down a hole 60 to 70 feet deep, especially on nothing but a rope. I weighed about 120 pounds, dripping wet at the time. Uh, <clears throat> you can think lean, mean fighting machine. But that was significantly heavier than a three-gallon bucket of water that might weigh 25 pounds to winch up. I was concerned more about the winch mechanism and the strength and integrity of the rope that a Stephen would be strong enough to let me down and lift me up safely. So I said I'd do it on one condition that Stephen speak at my funeral if I died during this ordeal. Stephen demurred, if I recall correctly. Not sure if he thought I was serious or if that comment put the danger of what we were attempting into perspective. So the first thing was to figure out the best way to get me down there. We decided to place a board across the top of one of the buckets so I'd have something to sit on, tie it to the rope, and have the rope between my legs for me to hold on to. That was perfect, assuming the handle of the bucket didn't break. But how to get me on the board seat, on the bucket, under the winch, all while dangling over the hole? So with Stephen holding the handle of the winch, I climbed on the edge of the well and tried to sit on the board, which was on top of the bucket, tied to the rope, 
and not fall off. Fortunately, I got settled on the board just a few feet from the top of the winch mechanism while dangling 60 plus feet above the water. It was too dark to see what was down there, so that unknown only added to the adrenaline rush. That was pretty scary, and I'd not even started down the hole yet. Ready? Slowly, Stephen let out the rope by letting my weight unwind the winch. About 15 feet down, there was a ledge. The top of the well hole was probably 10 feet across until you hit about 15 feet down. Now, for some perspective. 15 feet is about the height of the top of the roof of most single-story houses. So after passing the ledge, I continued down slowly. Every 30 seconds or so, he'd yell to see if I was okay. How you doing? And I'd yell back, I'm okay. Another 20 feet or so of descent, I hit another ledge. Apparently, since this well had been dug by hand, the workers needed a ledge every so often to put their ladders on so they could haul up the dirt and to climb out at the end of the workday. Now the width was shrinking and the walls were closing in. I don't remember a third ledge, but it continued to get skinnier and skinnier. And it was getting darker as I descended. Then the sides of the well stopped being dirt and became clay. And the clay was wet and it got chilly and damp. I looked up and saw a teeny tiny spot of light way up there. I yelled, getting close, as I didn't feel like getting lowered into the water and getting soaked. Stephen slowed the descent and after a few more yells, he stopped. All good? By now, I could touch the sides with my elbows and it was rather cramped. I kept my legs lifted up with the bottom of the bucket being a few inches above the water. The water was slightly milky white, probably from the clay. I didn't see how deep the water was, but I'd guess several feet. So I'd made it down safely. Now to assess the situation. I took inventory. First I saw the culprit, a 2 by 4 piece of wood, maybe 2 feet long, floating in the water. As the girls dropped the bucket, it probably hit the sides of the well just before splashdown and then hit this bucket at speed. Bam! That force would dent, damage, or break the bucket. So into my bucket seat went that board for the trip up. Second, two oranges. Both were floating in the water with a nice layer of white slime on the outside of the oranges. Yuck! Apparently they'd been down there for quite a while. I pulled out my 5mm blue surgical latex gloves. Just kidding. I reached out and bobbed for the slippery oranges with my bare hand until I got them both into the bucket I was sitting on. I rinsed my hand off in the water. Third, a few small sticks and leaves were floating in the water. I figured I might as well remove all the debris down there to improve the water quality going forward. So I leaned over and scooped them all up. Fourth, there were a few insects on the sides of the well near the water level. What they were doing down there, living their lives in virtual darkness, was a total mystery. But there wasn't time to ponder that. I decided to not address them as they were small and would be hard to catch or kill swinging on the bucket down there. Besides, Stephen was still holding on to the winch handle and no doubt he was getting tired. Fifth, wow, this was going to be fun. 
Why do I always get the best for last? A big, fat frog was floating in the water, and he was alive. Hey, little guy. Ribbit! Ribbit! Had I not shown up, he'd have died down there eventually and contaminated the water big time. So I grabbed the frog and put him underneath me in the bucket. I promise I won't jump out. Huh. Must be a girl frog. One final scan of the surface of the water and it was time to hopefully get pulled up. Now it was all up to Stephen and his physical strength to keep the winch secure and not let the weight cause the handle to get away from him and send me plummeting to a serious injury or death. Remember, he didn't commit to speaking at my funeral before this well expedition got underway. I looked up as I'd not done that since about 30 feet down. Wow, it was a long way up. 60 plus feet down is way, way down, let me tell you. That was when I truly realized the risk I was taking here. I yelled that I was ready. Stephen, pull me up. And he did. Slowly and steadily, he turned the handle on the winch and up I went with my bucket of cargo. As I passed the second ledge, I called out, Second ledge! And then the first ledge came into view. I was getting close. Everything okay? The sky above me was getting larger and it was getting brighter. And the sides started getting wider. I called out, Passing the first ledge! I'm sure Stephen was getting tired at this point. Finally, I was a few feet from the bottom of the winch and still not able to climb out of the bucket as I was dangling there with nothing to grab onto. A few folks had been watching this ordeal for entertainment purposes, no doubt, and with a few more cranks by Stephen, I reached out and was pulled to safety by a couple of the folks. I was glad to be out, and Stephen was glad to have delivered on the winch cranking and could now rest. Nice job, Stephen. So now it was the moment of truth. Everybody wanted to know if I'd figured out what was damaging the buckets. I dumped out the contents of the bucket I'd been sitting on and showed everyone what I'd discovered down at the bottom of the well. First up, the rotten oranges. They got tossed unceremoniously into the long grass nearby. So too the small sticks and leaves. Next, the 2 by 4 board. Aha! All the heads nodded, recognizing the cause of all the bucket damage over the previous weeks. This was the ultimate culprit and reason for this well-descending expedition. This carnage-causing board would be dried out and be used as firewood, no doubt. Justified punishment for the harm it had caused. Then all eyes turned to the frog. Folks were surprised it had been down there and probably equally amazed I'd picked it up. The frog was trying to figure out where it was, adapt to the sunshine, and to get situated in the new environment up on terra firma. She looked at me, smiled, then I heard, Thank you. She turned and hopped away. Ribbit!
The final story for this short story episode is titled, My Name is No Name, with some additional added on. In the area I grew up in, specifically the northwest corner of Democratic Republic of Congo, it was common for our Congolese friends to give us African names. Often, this was because pronouncing our American names was difficult, especially if an R was in it. The letter J is also difficult for them to pronounce as it's not in their vocabulary. It also showed that we were accepted by them and had earned a level of respect to be given an African name. Many folks earned the respect and acceptance of the Congolese and were given names. For instance, my friend Mark Thornblum was given the name Kelelo. This alludes to the fact he could play the trumpet really well, and Kelelo means trumpet. There was a career missionary named Dave Falconer. Well, Falconer is hard to pronounce in Lingala as there are no R's, so they called him Ekofo. Another couple of friends I grew up with and roomed with in college were Steve and Rick Fairweather. Steve's African name was Kimbo, which means glory in Lingala. Rick's was Mavuba. The backstory on these names is that when they were both young and playing soccer with their Congolese friends, there were two players on the Congo national soccer team named Kimbo and Mavuba. These names stuck, and to this day, I sometimes greet Steve on a telephone call with Kimbo. So, it was rather endearing to be given a name, and even more cool if it stuck. I've got folks that refer to me by my African name even now. So what is it, you ask? My African name is Liabina Mundoki Matata. Originally, it was just Liabina. Then, in high school, they added Mundoki Matata. It was October 1970, and I had returned home from my first term at the Ubangi Academy Boarding School. I was eight years old and in third grade. My dad had six students that he'd handpicked for leadership and mentoring and to be on his evangelism team that would go out to villages every month or so and spend the night. They'd show movies, play volleyball, and do other games on Saturday. Then the students would play band instruments in church on Sunday, and dad would preach. I loved going as I got to be in the village, eat great Congolese food, and be on an adventure with my dad. One of the subjects my dad taught these students in high school was English. So after arrival at the village and during some downtime, one of the students decided to try out his rudimentary English on me and have some conversation. He'd ask questions like, Where is your father? And, What is your name? Or he'd say, My name is Ikungu. I'd respond with, my father is by the truck, or other response. Kungu then pressed with, What is your name? Being the smart aleck that I was then, and still am now to only a slightly lesser degree, I responded, I don't have a name. Kungu, thinking he either incorrectly asked a question or that I'd not heard right, repeated, What is your name? Again, I responded, I don't have a name. This back and forth continued on for a bit, and then he realized I was being obstinate and difficult. 
All he wanted to do was practice his English conversation with his teacher's son, and the son wasn't cooperating. After some time, and realizing I wasn't going to be forthcoming with my name, he asked me in Lingala what my name was. I responded, I don't have a name. I still wasn't going to tell him my name. So, he decided to turn the tables on me and declared, Your name is Iliadina. Kungu was from the Mbaka tribe, which was the biggest one in the area, and the word Lia means name. Bina means no or not. Hence, Lia Bina means no name. So for the rest of that weekend, he and the other students called me Lia Bina. It stuck. So for many years, I was called Lia Bina by most of my Congolese friends. Kungu then felt it necessary to give my two younger brothers African names as well. For John, he gave the name Zubu. John was into gardening, and Zubu means garbage pit or compost pile, where the soil becomes rich and fertile and then would bear fruit, and ultimately be there to care for our parents in their old age. For Peter, he gave the name Diana. This means friendship. Then in high school, I joined an African soccer team with Rick Peterson. Being the only Americans on the team was sort of a novelty, and we obviously stood out. I recounted in my episode number 25 about playing soccer in Congo, about my ability to do scissor kicks. I also had a really strong kick and could boot the ball 50 to 60 yards or more on a good day. So after a game, we were talking about a few plays, and someone said that I'd had a really good shot on goal. It was a total rocket shot. In Lingala, mundoki means gun or shot. So soon enough, mundoki was added to my name. Then, and I really don't remember where the last piece came from or what triggered it, but they added matata. It has various meanings depending on the context. Matata means trouble or disorderly or hard to deal with. Or it could mean strong or serious. Or, in this case, it meant something to be reckoned with. So it made sense, apparently, to add matata to the mundoki. So there you have it. My Congolese name that I've carried with me for over 50 years. No name, wicked soccer kick, and someone to be reckoned with. Iliabina. Or. Mondoki. Or. Mondoki matata. Iliabina. Mondoki matata. So I hope you enjoyed these four short stories of various dimensions of my life in Congo. Remember, while we think the key to getting stuff done is by who you know, often it's who knows you, not necessarily who you know, that is more important. And don't worry about checking your eggs before cracking them into the cake batter or frying pan. Or will you, after listening to the egg story? <laughs> also, be thankful you don't have to get water from a well that might have rotten oranges, sticks, leaves, bugs, and a big, fat frog floating in it. Rick. Rather, you can simply turn on a faucet. And lastly... If you have a name from a foreign culture or language, you are indeed blessed to be accepted and honored by another people group. Everyone in the United States knows me as Jeff Eels, but when I'm in Congo, I answer to Liabina Mundoki Matata.
Thanks to the various folks that provided voiceovers for these stories, including my granddaughter, who was the infamous frog floating at the bottom of the well. So that concludes this episode. I hope you enjoyed it and will listen again. Other podcasts and blog articles on a variety of topics can be found at congokid.net. In addition, Congo Kid's life stories are also posted on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. I'm Jeff Eels, a.k.a. Congo Kid, your humble host. Until next time, I will send you off with a farewell in Lingala. Baninganangai, tikalamalamu. My friends, stay well. <laughs>